Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2. My grandpa's name was Ernest Claude Easley. Boy, isn't that a strong name. He was a mountain of a man, a wonderful husband, a devoted father, and above all, he loved our Savior, Jesus Christ. I have fond memories with him clearing fence lines and shelling purple-holed peas, uh, serving down at this ministry he was involved in called Care and Share, where he would provide weekly meals for the poor in their town, and singing next to him at First Baptist San Augustine, Texas. When my cousins and I grew older and we would come to visit, Grandpa would send us into town by ourselves. What a brave man which is probably why he always told us when we went in town, remember who you are and who you represent. But when I heard those words, I would walk a little taller through San Augustine, knowing that I was Ernest's boy. But Grandpa wasn't always the well-mannered, uh, retired banker that I had known my whole life. He had a backstory. Grandpa was born in 1917, into a poor family of five children living in East Texas. The Great Depression began as he turned 10, the same year that his father died. His oldest brother, my Uncle LB, dropped out of the eighth grade and went to work at the paper mill in order to provide for their family. Uh, they eventually decided to move to Dallas for greater opportunity. And on their, on their move to the big city, I remember him telling me this story, on their move to the big city, they'd found someone who would drive them, and um, on the way, that vehicle broke down. And so they hitchhiked the other half of the way on a cattle truck. And he described seeing the bright lights of the big city of Dallas for the first time. And uh, I remember him telling stories of the war where he served overseas. It's those scenes, those events that impacted his life that helped me understand my grandpa. I understood the backstories of his life, and that shaped how he saw himself and the world that he lived in. These events shaped him to become the man that he was. When we think about the book of Exodus and how it portrays Moses, our minds often run to think of the mountain of a man that he was. These unforgettable scenes of Moses' life, how he stood humbly before his God in, in the face of a burning bush as God spoke to him there, how he stood boldly to Pharaoh prophesying coming judgment. His arms stretched wide to heaven as the waters part into his arms clinging to a stone tablet where God had given his people his word. But before any of those history-defining moments, Moses rehearses the story of his birth and early life, a humble story of a Hebrew boy born into one of the darkest seasons in the history of God's people. It is said that Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is the great American novel. One of the scenes tells of an evening after Huck Finn has gone to live with the widow Douglas, where she wants to rear him in the teachings of the Bible. And so she's reading to him the story of Exodus, the very story we'll be reading today. This is how Huck described it. 
After supper, she got out her book, that's, that's the Bible, and learned me about Moses and the bulrushers. The bulrushers are, are reeds that grew in, in the Red Sea. And I was in a sweat to find out all about them. But by and by, she let it out that Moses had been dead a considerable long time. So then I didn't care no more about him, because I don't take no stock in dead people. <laughs> well, Huck Finn may not have found much use in the early life of Moses, but the God of the universe thought it was important enough to write down in his eternal word. What we'll discover in the backstory of Moses is that his life is not recorded so that we would marvel at the man, but wonder at the sovereign hand of God at work in the life of his, of his people. As you think about your own life, what do you wonder at when you think about God's sovereign steering hand at work and how he has guided you through the days of your life? Exodus 2, 1 through 22 shows how God delivered Moses so that Moses might deliver God's people. In the span of one page in most of your Bibles, Israel's deliverer goes through a lot of different experiences, near death, then to privileged status in Pharaoh's house, then to fugitive, finally to exile in a foreign land. Each of these scenes of Moses' backstory help us understand how he became the man that God would use in his grace to help deliver his people from slavery. Our sermon is entitled, A Deliverer is Born. And each of these scenes will help us understand the backstory of Moses' life that led him to become first the promised deliverer, verses 1 through 10. Second, the compassionate advocate, verses 11 through 15. And then finally, the continual sojourner, picking up at 15 and going to verse 22. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand your feet as we read together. It's a lengthy text, so we'll, we'll just read out loud right now, verses 1 through 10, as we hear from God's holy and inerrant word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, 
and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? In the first scene of Moses' life, we are introduced to the promised deliverer. As chapter 2 opens, the Israelites are still being held in captivity by the Egyptians as slaves. Pharaoh's decree that every Hebrew boy that was born was to be murdered still hangs over their heads. Yet, here is the story of a young man and a young woman, both from the tribe of Levi, who get married and then she becomes pregnant. Now, we're going to have a test to see who was here last week and who wasn't. Uh, We don't normally do things like this, but uh, you'll see why. Because last week, I talked about places in the text where when this would have been read out loud, the Israelites would have clapped and cheered at the top of their lungs every time God demonstrates his power over one of his enemies. And I just told you that this, this, this Hebrew man and Hebrew woman, in the midst of this oppression, had a child. So, I just want to prepare you. If people start clapping and cheering around you, that's why. I've taken a lot of time to set this up. Don't fail me, girl. So maybe we could say it like this. The more Pharaoh tried to keep them from multiplying, the more they multiplied. Pretty good. Pretty good. All right, so the parents here are not given names, but uh, Exodus chapter 6 tells us that they are called Amron and Jochebed. Amron is the father, Jochebed, the mother of this boy. We can only imagine the anxiety the couple would have had um, as Jochebed felt morning sickness for the first time. Uh, Their rejoicing would have to be delayed until the date of birth to see if this would be a girl that would live or yet one more Hebrew boy that would be thrown in the Nile. And surely it was a boy. The mother looks down on this little one and she calls him a fine child. In the Hebrew, it's actually the word good. So Moses echoes the language of the creation account in Genesis 1, where God, out of nothing, breathes into existence all things and then pronounces them good. Jochebed is holding her boy and pronouncing he is good, a gift from the Lord. After three months of hiding the child, she knows that that they can't hide any longer. She makes a basket with bulrushes, reeds, uh, like cattails that grow in the lakes in North Texas. She covers it with bitumen, which is a tar-like substance that you would slack on the outside of this, this floating basket in order that water didn't get in and drown the boy. And she nestled him among the reeds of the Nile River, which was what Pharaoh had commanded. The basket in this instance is the same word in Hebrew, tebah, that is used to describe Noah's ark in Genesis 6 through 9. It's the only place that this word is found anywhere else in the Bible. So just as God used an ark to save his people in in Genesis, here he will use a miniature version to save his people once again. Moses is like a new Noah who goes through the water in his ark, sealed with tar, 
in order to save the people of God from a wicked generation, like we saw in Genesis 6. So as Jochebed put the baby in the Nile, Moses' older sister, likely Miriam, who we'll get to know pretty well later in the book, stood watch to see what would happen to her little brother. And in the providence of God's never early and never late, always on time providence, Pharaoh's daughter was also there bathing. She sees this little basket, opens it up, sees this child, and then hears it. She hears his cry and has compassion on the boy. Remember, her dad is the one who had ordered his murder. And here in his own household, this compassion demonstrated to the Hebrew baby. The princess agreed with Miriam. A Hebrew woman needed to nurse this child. And so sister goes and scurries along, finds a handmaiden who is none other than mama. Brings her back, introduces, makes the connection, says, well, here's an able-bodied Hebrew woman to nurse this child. And the arrangement is made on the spot. This baby will live. Its own mother will nurse him until he is weaned. And then in the course of time, he will not live as a slave, but in the palace as a son of Pharaoh. Where Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says, Moses would be trained in wisdom, in the wisdom of the Egyptians, and become powerful in speech and action. But wait, there's more. The government is going to pay this woman to raise her own child. What in the world? Who could orchestrate such a remarkable story but the sovereign God who turns the hearts of a king like water in his hand? Who turned the heart of this nameless Pharaoh's daughter toward the child with compassion? When Moses is older, he returns to the palace, and she names him Moses, for he was drawn out of the water. Don't you hear this foreshadowing of what will soon happen? His God will draw his people out of the water. At the conclusion of this scene, amidst the sorrows of slavery, a ray of hope breaks through the clouds with the mention of a boy named Moses. Now, I've entitled these opening 10 verses, The Promise of a Deliverer, or The Promised Deliverer. But before we move on, let's ask, when did God promise deliverance for his people at all? What do you mean a promise of deliverance? Well, the answer to that question is found all the way back in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, where hundreds of years earlier, the Lord promised Abram. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's where the story's going, but we're not there yet. When that promise is given, the people didn't know how or who would lead them to this deliverance. But here in Exodus 2, we are introduced to the one who would be the answer to so many prayers. Like last week, these first 10 verses mention a lot of people. There's this young couple that had the child. 
There's the sister. There's Pharaoh's daughter. There's a handful of handmaidens, but only one name, Moses. The first verse told us that that this promised child is from the house of Levi, and the final verse gives the name of God's promised deliverer, Moses. Before we move on, I think in these verses are an invitation for us to be a people who trust in the promises of God even when they feel delayed and even seem unseen. 400 years is a long time to live under the oppression of Egypt. Generations were born, raised, and died waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. It's a lesson that we will see the, Egyptian, uh, the, the Israelites in the book of Exodus learn again and again. It's a lesson in the Christian life that we learn again and again. Hebrews 11.23 highlights the faith of this young couple in God as they hid Moses. We've looked at Paul a couple of times. 1 Corinthians says that these things were written as examples of faith to us. And so as we think about the example of their faith, let it encourage ours and a people who wait for deliverance, ultimate deliverance in the return of Christ. So what problems do we see that God has not gone before us? What promises of God do you have a hard time believing? Do you doubt his word? Are you plagued with anxiety and worry? Look today at God's word and be reminded of his promise to you. Look to Christ where all of God's promises are yes and amen fulfilled in him who is our promised deliverer. The second scene of Moses' life presents him as a compassionate advocate. Verses 11 through 15. I'll continue to read. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Boz, did you title this section a compassionate advocate? Did not Moses just murder a guy? Doesn't sound like compassion. Well, just bear with me. I think you'll see where, what I'm getting at. In verse 10, um, we were left with Moses adopted by an Egyptian family, placed even in the first family of Egypt. But while he's living in the palace, his people are being oppressed by the very family he's now a part of. In verse 11, fast forwards the plot and says Moses had now grown up. And one day he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Now that's not just like looking out the window into the world. This means he's looking into or inspecting how the people of God are being treated. And he found 
an Egyptian severely beating. Every time there's fighting mentioned, uh, there's different words in English. In Hebrew, it's always the same word. It's a severe blow, like a, a hit in order to slay, to kill. That's what's going on. So this Egyptian is beating one of his fellow Hebrew brothers. Moses looks around and says, and sees there's no one to defend him. There's no one to come to his rescue. He also looks around and sees that no one will see if he takes matters into his own hands. And so Moses delivered his own severe blow against this Egyptian. He died. And then he buried his body in the sand, hoping that no one would see what had happened. The next day, he went out again and saw not an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, but two fellow Hebrews beating one another. Moses can't believe it. With everything happening to the people of God, being held captive in slavery with burdens too great to bear, with their sons being murdered, now they're going to turn on one another? Surely this can't be. And so Moses gets involved. He tries to break up the fight. And one of the guys says, who are you? Who are you? Who made you prince among us? And the blood is still boiling and the, the breathing is still heavy. And he says to Moses, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses, just the, the camera zooms in on his face. And we see that he knows he's been found out. What he thought was done in secret, someone saw. Not only did they see, but word had spread really quickly all the way back to the king's chair. We see madmen throughout history kill the people that are closest to them, their wife, their children. And here, this madman seeks to now kill his adopted grandson because of this demonstration of power in defending the Hebrews over his people, the Egyptians. Moses runs and runs and runs all the way to Midian. There are two things that I want to highlight about this count. You want the good news or the bad news? What do you want first? We'll start with the good news. <laughs> the good news is that these verses show a change in Moses. While he may have grown up a prince in Egypt, our text separates him from that association and identifies him with the people of God. Notice the pronouns. Moses went to his people. An Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. But notice also how uh, the Hebrews are less eager to identify with Moses as one of their own or to accept him. They're questioning his loyalty, his leadership, his right to try to lead them and speak into their lives. By the way, spoiler alert, we will see that for months to come. Them questioning Moses' leadership. But notice Moses' compassion for his people and his passion for his God. The writer of Hebrews interprets what we're reading like this. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, that's the same period of time we're looking at here, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered reproach with Christ greater than wealth than the treasures of Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The invisible God has opened his eyes to see who he is. Verse 25 says, Moses chose this. He chose to leave behind this palace and live as a fugitive. He chose to leave wealth and possessed nothing. He chose to leave behind his first class education and live among uneducated people. He left his high position and dwelt among the poor and the powerless. Do you hear any connections ringing in this text? Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ has done for us. He chose to leave the glory of heaven and make himself nothing. He chose to leave behind his exalted position to come and rescue the lowly. He chose to die a sinner's death on a sinner's cross in the sinner's place, in my place, in your place. Why? Because he had compassion on us in our condition, a helpless people in a helpless state whose only hope was Christ. He advocated for us when we could do nothing ourselves. Moses' life looks a lot like Jesus in some ways, but not in every way. So now the bad news. We're in the second book of 66, making our way through the Bible. We were promised back in Genesis 3.15 that one day a deliverer would come and crush the head of the serpent. The bad news is Moses is not that guy. He's not that one. He's just a shadow of him and an imperfect one at that. Moses was right to fight against injustice for people being oppressed, but his attempt to bring about justice results in more death. He knows this is wrong. Look how quickly he tries to cover up what he had done. But in time... Moses will learn that deliverance for his people will not come through human strength or ingenuity. It will come through God alone. So this account is a textbook example of teaching us to be people who don't rush the plans of the Lord, who learn to wait on God. Like Moses, we live in a world plagued with injustice, even the scenes that we have seen come through our screens this week are filled with things that break our hearts, that make us cry out, how long, oh Lord? I had an email coming this morning from a brother in the Middle East, Teague in praying for Afghan Christians. I, I had an email come in at 7 a.m. asking us as a church from my brother in the Middle East saying, please pray for these specific Afghanis today. Today's the day where they will either escape or they will be uh, left behind. God is sovereign whether they go or whether they stay. And God is enough for them whether they go or whether they stay. But we pray for their freedom like we want the freedom ourselves to worship God and not be bound by any form of slavery. And so we pray and we wait and where we can we act to bring about justice 
but we do everything in accordance with the scriptures, and that's the key. One of the worst words in the Collin County Dictionary is patience. Uh, We went to that page where it is and just ripped it out and threw it away. That's how much we hate that word. Patience is for other people. Patience is irritating. We've done everything we can to make sure we don't have to be patient anywhere. But patience is the practice of the Christian life. Like Moses, we look at a world marked with injustice, and there are many things we can do, but most things we cannot. And so what do we do then? We look to a day where judgment is coming, where the God of the universe, the God of perfect justice, will exercise once and for all perfect justice in this world. He will judge the living and the dead. He will right every wrong. He will have the final word over every scheme of the devil. Look up, church. That day's coming. Until then, we wait on the Lord. The final scene of this backstory shows Moses as the continual sojourner. Verses 15, uh, we'll pick up at 15 and read through 22. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reel, he said, how is it you've come home so soon today, ladies? I added that. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This scene tells the rest of the story of Moses' life in Midian. One day, Moses is sitting at a well, and these seven ladies roll up on him, and they're the daughters of the priest of Midian. We don't know a lot about the the religious state of Midian or even this man at the time. We know the Midianites are an offshoot from the people of God, an offspring of Abraham, actually. And so these ladies uh, come up to him at the well, and as they're trying to make, make their way, a gang of bully shepherds. That sounds rough, doesn't it? Bully shepherds are like trying to keep these ladies from getting water and watering their flock. And so Moses the deliverer stepped in, came to the rescue, saves them, draws the water up from the well, waters their flock ahead of time, which is why dad's so surprised they get home early. And this time, he demonstrates the same compassion for others when he found them harassed, but there's a difference in the outcome, isn't there? There's no bodies to bury. There's just a group of shepherd thugs just limping off into the Middle East midday sun, licking their wounds. Never to mess with Moses again, I'm sure. Ladies got home and told dad what had happened. He said, where is this guy? 
Where is this guy who's defended my daughter's honor, knocked these knuckleheads around? I want to meet him. I want to, I want to cook him dinner. And Moses had no idea the dinner he was about to go to, did he? What a first date. He walks in for some bread and leaves with a wife. This woman, Zipporah, I'm sure she was lovely. She probably sang in the band. Her, her name literally means Twitterer. <laughs> Not the little blue bird that comes to your mind, but like a little songbird. Songbird. And before long, a baby boy is born. And could that have happened back in Egypt? Nope. What has God done? Taken him to another foreign land or he would continue to bless him, multiply him. Moses names this boy Gershom, which means I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. That name describes how Moses felt in this world, a continual sojourner. He was an Israelite born in a foreign land of Egypt, now living in the foreign land of Midian, Acts chapter 7 verse 30 tells us he lived there for 40 years, separated from the promised land of Canaan, and of course, Moses would never spend one night there. His eyes would see the promised land, but his feet would never stand on that soil. In these verses, there is an interesting, inanimate object that is very meaningful. It was back in verse 15. A well. A well. Moses told us in Genesis the story of how Isaac met Rebekah. It was at a well. And how Jacob met Rachel, his wife, where? At a well. So single guys, take notes. Where do you hang out? By the well. Good luck with that one. So here's Moses, the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, meeting a girl at a well who became his wife. Why include the well as a part of this story? The well is a silent witness of Moses saying, I'm with them. He includes the well to say, I'm, I'm part of that. I, I'm like the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's who I identify with. This is about identity for Moses. Remember, he looks out and sees with compassion on his people. Now, as he's writing the story, he includes the story at the well, linking him with Isaac, with Jacob, with God's people. The God of Moses is, in fact, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and still our God today. Have you identified with the people of God? Have you been adopted as a son or daughter of God? The Bible says there's only one way to do this. The people of old looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, to God's promises fulfilled in the one who would come and bring deliverance. We look back knowing his name is Jesus, to his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. You see, Jesus is the ark that saved us. Moses was wrapped in reeds. We've been wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. Moses was hemmed in by bitumen. We've been hemmed in by God's sovereign grace. 
Moses passed through the waters knowing God's redemption. We have passed through the waters knowing his salvation in Christ. So if you have yet to trust in Jesus as your salvation, each of us who have, we invite you today. Repent of your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our community is exploding with growth. You might have realized in your commute getting longer and longer by the week. It doesn't look like it's going to slow down for many years. Many of us have moved from out of state, some even out of the country, to make their home here in North Texas. So just by a quick show of hands, how many of you grew up outside of Collin County? All right. And how many of you grew up in Collin County? We're so glad that y'all allowed us to come and live here. (laughs) I don't know how long you've lived here, but perhaps this place still doesn't feel like home yet to you. In time it may, but perhaps you will always have a longing for the place that you came from. And as Christians, we're meant to have just a tinge of that in our feeling and thinking. A people living here, but not belonging here. I love how Tim Chester explained it. He said, after our conversion, that's when we come to faith in Christ, the land of our birth and our upbringing become a foreign land to us. We are pilgrims heading for the promised land the home that is kept for us in heaven. Living as exiles is one of the metaphors the New Testament teaches us to think through and and we are given, we are sojourners in this world, called and commissioned by God to exercise dominion over this place that God has called us to, but not to become so comfortable here we forget we're people made for another place, another kingdom, a kingdom that will soon Return, look up, saints. The time draws near. We're almost home. These three scenes help us understand the backstory of Moses, the prophet, the leader, the deliverer. They point back to the early days of this great man, and as as Huck Finn uh, put it, they've learned us, they've taught us multiple things about him, things that Paul says we can apply to our lives as the people of God, don't miss this. At the same time, they point forward to Christ. You see, Moses is not the main character of the book of Exodus. God is. And God is telling his story of redemption in Exodus that would finally be seen in Jesus the name of God's promised deliverer who would come and save us from death and slavery and bondage and sin and Satan once and for all. Christ, who is the compassionate advocate, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us, pilgrim saints on this journey. Christ, the sojourner, who never uh, found a place to lay his head in this world because he was on mission to rescue you and me from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father with glory and power and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
And so as we look at the birth of the man raised to deliver the people of God from Egypt, we look also to the one who was born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. A deliverer is born, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us through it. Now I pray that the seeds that have been sown by your spirit and the preaching of your word would bear fruit and do its work in us. We want to be a people who look and see Christ, who inspect and investigate people who know you. I thank you that this text is meant to help us know not Moses, but the God of Moses and the one that he looked to for ultimate salvation, the one who would come much later, to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Let us be a patient, waiting, watching, working, loving, caring, trusting people as we both trace your faithfulness in our lives in the past and look forward with hope you are the one who holds our lives you are the one who holds our world you're the one who holds the future you are God we ask these things in Christ's name